Do you remember the first time you went to a cemetery? You know, it's uh, quite an unusual place. It's not like any other place that you might go to. You go out to the supermarket, uh, go to Walmart, wherever you see all kinds of activity and commerce and people wearing masks nowadays. And you go to schools and you see children learning and playing and uh, that type of thing. You go to work and there's, of course, all kinds of tasks for you to perform and uh, things for you to do, lots of busyness there. You, fi- you finally go home, and at home, I hope it's a place where you can just be at ease. It's a place where you can kick off your shoes, be yourself. You know, it's a place of familiarity. Even if your home is a uh, dysfunctional home, it's your dysfunction, right? And it's something that you're used to. Well, the cemetery has none of that. When you go to the cemetery, it, there's not busyness there. It's inactive. There's really nothing to do, or very little to do at least. There's no classrooms full of children. You won't see kids running around playing typically at a cemetery. Uh, you're not really at ease there. And if, if you do feel like you need to go there to the cemetery... Um, if you feel compelled to go there, it's because you've, you've probably experienced some degree of loss and you're missing somebody and you want to honor them. And, uh, and, and so it's just not a natural place for us to be. You know, the Bible itself takes us to the cemetery from time to time. And a lot of times in the Bible, it's uh, called tombs. It's where they buried their dead. And there's a good reason the Bible takes us to the cemetery because... There's coming a day when other people will take you to the cemetery. And uh, that may be a place where you rest, if you will, for quite a long time. We're we're not sure about God's timetable on things. Uh, But last time we checked, the uh, death rate is pretty high. Uh, And so it's something that uh, we uh, will face one day. And so the Bible takes us there because the cemetery is a place where people at one point or another, have to go. And if you begin in Genesis and you start looking at the stories of the Bible where people went to the tombs, you'll find that the the mood of those people is very much like the mood when we go to the cemetery. It's somber. It's solemn. There's a sorrow there. There's mourning uh, there. There's maybe, for those of us with faith, uh, an expectation, a hope that this is not the end. And it certainly is not the end for those of us who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But when you go through the Bible and you go through all of the Old Testament and you see these experiences the people had at the tombs, and then you finally get to Jesus, things start to change. You see, Jesus had a way of disrupting the mood at the cemetery. And just think about the experiences that Jesus had in and around the tombs. We have the man who lived in the tombs, the demon-possessed man who lived at the cemetery, if you will. And Jesus, what did he do with him? Jesus delivered the man and set him free, and the man's complete mood changed. In fact, the entire town's mood changed when that man was set free. When Jesus himself died on the cross, the Bible says that the tombs in Jerusalem were opened and that the dead were walked out. And that's quite unusual. I'm, I'm sure the next time you go to the cemetery, if you see people crawling out of the graves, you're going to take notice. 
at the very least, right? And so something special happened then when Jesus died. And of course, just a few days later, Jesus himself rose from the grave. And that was unlike any other type of resurrection because Jesus had a glorified body. He rose as the Son of God. And uh, there's a lot to unpack there. And, and that's not where we're going really here. But, but Jesus himself, when he was at the tomb, the tomb could not hold him. And if you back up just a little bit in Jesus' ministry, you have Jesus with Jairus' daughter. Jairus' daughter was sick and, 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 became, and actually died, and Jesus raised her to life. And he did the same thing with Lazarus in John chapter 11. And I invite you to take your Bible and turn to John chapter 11, the Gospel of John chapter 11, because that's where we'll look at this story today. It's the story of Jesus' friend, Lazarus, and Jesus' interaction with him. And it's in John chapter 11 where Jesus identifies himself again with an I am statement. Earlier he said, I am the bread of life. And then I am the light of the world. Jesus said, I am the door of the sheep. And in that same story, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. And now as we progress a little bit further in John's gospel, in John 11, Jesus makes this very famous statement to, to Martha. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And so let's just start looking at this chapter in verses 1 through 4 of John chapter 11. The Bible says, now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters, that's Mary and Martha, sent word to Jesus, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Now, just a little aside right here. They didn't send Jesus an email. They didn't call him on his cell phone. They did it the old-fashioned way, private courier. And so it took a little bit of time for the message to get to Jesus. And it was going to take a little bit of time for the message to get back to them, whatever Jesus' response would be. Verse 4. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. This is a statement that Jesus expects people with faith will respond to. Jesus is saying to his disciples, probably to the courier who brought him the message, this will not end in Lazarus's death. Lazarus's death will not be the end of this story. The end of this story will result in God the Father getting glorified and God the Son himself getting glorified. And so Jesus is expecting people with strong faith to believe exactly what he said in verse 4, but that's not what he finds as this story unfolds. Verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick in verse 6, Jesus then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. 
raises the question. If Jesus loved Lazarus and his sisters Mary and Martha, why did Jesus remain for two more days? Why didn't he go and respond to Lazarus's problem? Well, it's because Jesus believed what he said in verse 4, that this sickness is not going to end in Lazarus's death. In other words, the story of this episode here is not going to end in a sad way with Lazarus dying. But God the Father and God the Son are going to be glorified. And because Jesus believed what he said in verse 4, and he expected the disciples to believe what he said in verse 4, there was no hurry for him to go. In fact, Jesus was on the Father's timetable. And when you are on the Father's timetable, when you're carrying out the Father's agenda, then even a personal friendship, a close personal friendship like Jesus had with Lazarus, that would have to be put aside. Lazarus was just going to have to wait. He was going to have to wait until it was the right time, according to the Father, for Jesus to go. Even if waiting resulted in Lazarus' death, Lazarus was going to have to wait. You see, Jesus doesn't panic when bad news comes. Can you imagine that? That, that if Jesus receives this message and he just says, Oh my goodness, we've got to hurry, we've got to run, we've got to panic, we've got to go. And he, and he scurries off. By the time he gets to Lazarus, Lazarus would probably be dead anyway. Just as dead as he would be a few days later when Jesus actually left. And so Jesus does not give himself over to panic. Jesus is on his Father's timetable. He's being led by the Spirit of God. And even if Jesus had arrived when Lazarus was still alive, here's the question. What would have glorified God the Father more? A sick man being healed or a dead man being raised? And that's the point. Jesus is going to raise a dead man. But as we'll see in a minute, Mary and Martha both had an expectation that Jesus would hurry and that he would heal a sick Lazarus. And they believed he could do it. But that's not the question. Would Mary and Martha believe that Jesus could raise a dead Lazarus? That was the question. Verse 7, Jesus said, then, or the Bible says, Then after this he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Um... Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going back there again? This doesn't make any sense to them. Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Jesus isn't afraid to go for his enemies want to kill him. Why not? Because according to Jesus' perspective, it's like this. If you were able to shrink Jesus' entire ministry, his three and a half years or so of ministry on earth, if you were able to shrink that down to, let's say, a 12-hour day from, from sunrise to sunset, 12 hours, if you are able to shrink that down, Jesus knows that the darkness of his death is not yet at hand. There's still hours to go. It's getting closer, but it's not yet. And so Jesus has no problem walking in the metaphorical light 
of the day doing the will of God, even if it takes them back into the lion's den. And so Jesus is going to go back to, we might say, the lion's den, back to where his head is wanted on a platter. His enemies want to kill him. And so in verse 15, or verse 11, we read, This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of his sleep. Verse 12, the disciples then said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. You ever have one of those conversations, hello? Are you picking up on what I'm saying? Oh, McFly, you, ever, you know, and just trying to figure out, are you, are you really understanding what I'm saying? So Jesus made it very clear. Lazarus is dead. And then he said in verse 15, and this is very important. Jesus said, and I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. This is the second time now that Jesus has indicated he expects his disciples to believe something. But what is it exactly that they need to believe? Look at verse 15 again real closely. Jesus says, I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe. In other words, if Jesus was there in time to heal a sick Lazarus, they, the disciples, wouldn't have believed whatever it is Jesus needed them to believe. In other words, they already believed Jesus could heal the sick. He had just healed a blind man. They knew that Jesus could heal the sick. Jesus was taking their faith another step, a big step. The healing of a sick Lazarus wouldn't have caused any type of uh, stretching of their faith at all. Jesus, uh, his disciples knew that Jesus was a healer already. He wanted them to believe something greater than that. And what is greater than being able to heal the sick? Well, they're about to find out. Verse 16, Therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Let us go also, so that we may die with him. Oh, I love Thomas. I love Thomas. Thomas is called Doubting Thomas. But, you know, he might be called Realistic Thomas. Uh, but here, I think he needs to be called Passive Aggressive Thomas. You know, come on, boys, let's go with them so we can all die. You know, that's just a passive aggressive comment. And Jesus does what you should always do with passive-aggressive people. Ignore them. He doesn't respond at all. He just goes about his business. And so, moving on, verse 17. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now, why is this important? It's very important. This four-day time period is very important. Because the general belief at the time was among Jews that was when someone died, the spirit of the dead person hovered nearby that dead person for three days. It just sort of hung around for three days. Why? 
Because maybe there is a possibility that that spirit might re-enter the person. Now, this obviously didn't happen very often, but that was the belief. And then from the color of that body began to change after the third day, that was the spirit's indication that it's too late. Now the spirit is obliged to go to Sheol, the realm of the dead. Now that was the belief. It's probably unlike your belief about what happens when someone dies. But that was the common belief at the time. And so for all the mourners, when they're mourning on day one and day two and day three and day three passes, oh, Lazarus is not just dead, he's dead dead. He's gone dead. He ain't coming back dead. This is just too late dead. The spirit is at Sheol, and once a spirit makes it to Sheol, game over. You can't get that spirit back. It's completely over at that point. And so there's no more hope. There's no more hope for Mary. There's no more hope for Martha. It is done. They'll never see Lazarus again. Not in this lifetime. That's what they're thinking. Verse 18. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, she left Bethany. She went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Now, Martha is not livid at Jesus. I've heard some interpretations where they said Martha's just so angry at Jesus. She's just so livid and mad at Jesus because he didn't come sooner. It's not really that at all. Martha is just sort of resigned to the fact that, well, it took Jesus some time to get here, and so now it's just inevitable. You know, this, this must have been an inevitability in God's plan. I'm just going to have to deal with it. I'm going to have to deal with the loss. Um, but Jesus, just so you know, if you had made it here early enough, I know you could have healed him, and things would be different, but I get it. These things happen. It's the way of the world. And then she adds this little comment. She says, now I know that... Whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Question, was Martha somehow believing that Jesus was going to ask God to give Lazarus back to her? I don't think Martha actually thought that. Because we'll see later that Martha doesn't believe that at all. What Martha is saying is, Jesus, if you were here early enough, you could have healed Lazarus and you know, I would have been a lot happier, but now that this inevitable thing has happened. You've got this good relationship with God. Could you please ask God to comfort me and my sister? Because we're pretty torn up about this. And so I think what she's actually asking Jesus to do is to pray for her and her sister. Because Jesus, she perceived, had a good relationship with the Father. And Jesus replied to her in verse 23, your brother will rise again. This is the third time that Jesus calls someone to believe that he has the power of, uh, 
over death, that he has the power over the enemy of death, the power to raise someone. But Martha, she doesn't understand it this way. Martha thinks that Jesus is talking about the resurrection of the end times, at the last day. And that's what she says in verse 24. Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? This is a powerful statement by Jesus. Martha's saying, oh, I know. I believe all the good theology about eschatology, about the end times. I know Lazarus is going to be raised from the dead someday, a long time from now. Jesus said, no, I'm the resurrection of the end times. I'm going to bring the resurrection of the end times here today. I have the power to bring the resurrection of the end times into the present. I am the Lord over all. I am the one who conquers the undefeated enemy of death. And he who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? Again, Jesus is calling for belief. But it's not what he finds. Let's see how Martha responds. Verse 27. She said to him, Yes, Lord. I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. You know, Martha says all the right words. But as we'll see in a minute, she doesn't really believe it. She says she believes that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. She says that she believes that Jesus descended from heaven, that he's the Son of God. She says that she believes that he is the fulfillment of the Hebrew Scriptures. He is the one who comes into the world. But her faith at this point was not anything more than mere words. She knew her theology. Jesus repeatedly wants people to believe that he will raise Lazarus from the dead. And the response that he gets from Martha is good, theologically sound statements, but it's not anything more than words. Verse 28. And when she had said this, then she went away, she went back into the village, and she called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus was, had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him outside of town. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary had got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep, weep there. She didn't hear what Mary or what Martha said. She didn't know that Mary was... They didn't know that Mary was going to go see Jesus. They just saw that Mary jumped up and she ran out of the house and they decided, we got to follow her. Why? Because these are professional mourners. These are people that the family hired to mourn with the family. And it might sound very strange to you, but when Jewish people died at the time, the family would often hire professional mourners and they would take their cues from family members. If someone starts crying, they would start crying. If someone starts wailing, they would start wailing. And so that might seem strange to us, but believe it or not, there's a growing industry of professional mourners even today. It really is. If you're out of work, hey, and you can pull off some tears, you may be able to hack it, you know. 
Now, why would someone hire professional mourners? It sounds so staged. It sounds so fake to us. Why would someone do that? Well, a couple reasons. Number one is to show respect to the deceased. Have you ever been to a funeral that's very poorly attended? And it's like, ugh, no one's here. You know? And it either means one of two things. Either they, they just weren't liked by anybody, or maybe they've outlived everybody. You know, They outlived all of their friends. They're the last one. And so, but it's sort, of, it's sort of strange when there's a funeral and not many people are there. And a second reason to have professional mourners in that day is to bring comfort to the family. And how would that bring comfort to the family? Well, basically like this. Have you ever been to a funeral and maybe you were one of the surviving uh, uh, persons uh, close to the one who passed away? And someone came up to wish their condolences upon you, and you had no idea who they were. But, but they were, they were uh, truly sorrowful for you. Well, that's nice, isn't it? I mean, even if you don't know who they are, you're, you're, you're sort of touched by that. And so it's sort of, sort of similar to that. And so when Mary got up to leave the house and to go find Jesus, these professional warners, they didn't know what was going on. They thought she was going to the tomb. They'd just get up and follow. That's what they're supposed to do. And so and she went to Jesus. In verse 32, we read, Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Same exact thing as Martha. They may have been talking before, you know. But same exact words. But it's a little bit different between Mary and Martha because Mary falls at Jesus' feet and she's weeping and she's crying. And also, she didn't finish Martha's theologically sound statement that Martha made earlier. But here's Mary. She's weeping. The mourners, they're going to be weeping. Verse 33. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping... And so all of these people are weeping. Before we get to the rest of verse 33, I want you to pay very close attention to something that I'm about to say because most English translations are far too polite for what happens in verse 33. Because verse 33 should read this way, When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came also with, with her also weeping, my translation, the New American Standard says, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. Actually, the words that John uses are these. Jesus was disgusted in spirit and was perturbed. When we say that someone is deeply moved, like most English translations say, that's way too vague. It, sounds, it makes it sound like Jesus was overcome with sadness. It makes it sound like Jesus began mourning too. It sounds like Jesus was saddened about the death of his friend Lazarus because he was friends with Lazarus. And, and, um, and so he's, he's just sad because he lost a friend. But the word deeply moved is a poor translation. The word is actually he was disgusted in spirit or angered. In spirit, And that's how the verse should be translated. And that next word, which is usually translated, he was troubled. What do you think of when you think of someone who's troubled? Oh, they're troubled. You know, that's usually a nice way of saying, oh, they have mental problems. You know, 
They're troubled. Or it's someone who's anxious. Oh, they're anxious about something. Oh, I don't know what to do. I'm just so troubled. I'm blah, blah, blah. It, that, that's not the picture at all of Jesus here. The word troubled is, again, too vague. The word is actually perturbed. In other words, when Jesus saw Mary weeping and the mourners who were with her weeping, Jesus became disgusted and angry and perturbed. You know, most good stories have both a protagonist and an antagonist. The good guy and the bad guy. The protagonist in this story, the good guy, is Jesus, obviously. The bad guy is not death. You see, when Jesus spoke to death, death obeyed. But repeatedly, when Jesus spoke to the disciples, to Mary, and to Martha, they didn't respond. Death is the enemy here that Jesus overcomes. But death isn't the problem. Death doesn't cause Jesus to weep. Everyone else does. All throughout this story, Jesus repeatedly asks people to believe. He tells his disciples to believe, but they're too worried about their own skin. He tells Martha to believe, but she's just full of words. He tells Mary to believe, but she's just full of tears. The entire time, standing right in their midst is the power over death, and they do not recognize Jesus for who he really is. And it bothers Jesus deep in his spirit. And it's at this point that Jesus asks, where's the tomb? Verse 34. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Why again did Jesus weep? A lot of people think, well, he wept because he was so sad about losing his friend Lazarus, or maybe he was just empathizing with Mary and the mourners. But you know, interpretations like these are just guesses, and making a stab in the dark is not good enough. When good interpretation is found right here, the text and the broader context points us to an obvious conclusion. The idea that Jesus wept because he was sad about losing his friend Lazarus, think about it, it makes no sense at all. Why? Because from the very beginning, he's been steadfast that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. So according to the idea that Jesus was sad because he lost Lazarus, well, here's, here's what this interpretation would have you believe. Number one, that Jesus initially says death is not the end of the story, and then he tells his disciples, let's go to Lazarus, I need to awaken him. And then he tells, them, he tells Martha, your brother will rise again, and he uh, sees Mary and the mourners weeping, and he becomes disgusted and angered. And finally, when he sees the tomb, it finally hits him. Oh, my goodness, he's really dead. No, he knew he was dead. He's known for four days plus he's been, he was going to be dead. Jesus didn't cry because we cry. We cry when someone dies because we can't do anything about it, and it's frustrating. We don't like death. It takes our loved ones, our best friends, our spouses, and our children even away from us. We don't like death at all. 
But you know what? We can't do a thing about it ourselves. Jesus could. And he knew it. And he said he was going to. Jesus wasn't sad because death happened. He was about to overcome it. And he told people for four days at least what he was going to do. You know, the idea that he was sad because he lost his friend Lazarus and might preach well at funerals, but it just doesn't hold any water. In fact, the Jews interpreted it that way. They said in verse 36, so the Jews were saying, they looked at how Jesus was weeping, and they said, see how he loved him. But you know, be, be cautious about getting your interpretive techniques from people that were wrong in the entire story. You know, if they're wrong about everything else spiritually happening, they're probably wrong about why Jesus is crying too. You know, they were saying, oh, it's too late. If Jesus had just gotten here earlier, if he'd gotten here on day three, maybe the Spirit could have returned, but it's day four, it's too late. The Spirit's in Sheol, it's just too late. Nothing can be done. See how sad Jesus is. But they're wrong. They assumed that Jesus could do nothing about it, but they were wrong. Verse 37, but some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? I mean, they were saying, oh, it's, the least. it's one thing to bring healing to a blind man, which is just impossible, but Jesus did that. But nobody can overcome death, not four-day-old death. No, that's just impossible. Death is the undefeated enemy. They didn't believe in Jesus, and that's why he wept. And I want to give you some more reasons why this is so, why Jesus wept because he was so frustrated at their lack of belief. Number one, when John writes Jesus wept, he used a word for weeping or wept that's completely unlike any other word that he uses in this story. In fact, the word that Jesus used or that John used for wept, that word is not even used anywhere else in the entire New Testament. You know, it'd be one thing if we were talking about someone being sad and we'd say, yeah, see how sad they are? They sure are sad. Look at all the sadness in them. And someone else says, look at the sorrow. Oh, well, sorrow has a different connotation. Someone says, look at them wailing. Look at them grieving. That has a different connotation. And so John purposefully uses a different connotation just to let us know that his tears are not like the tears of the mourners or the tears of Mary. And like I said, for four days straight, Jesus has been uh, saying that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But the most significant reason that we know that Jesus was weeping for a reason having to do with people not believing in him is this. Every other time in the Gospels that Jesus shows deep emotion, every other time, it is something related to his mission. He's a man on a mission. In Matthew 23 and Luke 13, Jesus groaned over Jerusalem, the Bible says. In his high priestly prayer, Jesus fervently prayed for his disciples' safety and for their future. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the most famous of all, Jesus agonized in prayer over what would happen at his death and over the weaknesses of his disciples. Every single time, it had to do with the mission that he was on. And so likewise here, what we have is that we have the eternal Son of God through whom all things were created, the one who holds the power of life and death 
in his hands, and he's standing right in front of them, and he repeats in plain language all that they are so, supposed to do is simply believe that he has the power over death, and not one of them do it. Not one. The disciples are worried about their own skin, and Martha's telling Jesus what she thinks he wants to hear, and Mary is crying because someone that she loves, who's going to be alive in a couple of minutes, she's still crying over that person. And so Jesus, disgusted in his spirit and perturbed at the lack of faith he's witnessing, he starts walking toward the tomb, and with every step, the frustration builds within him until he can no longer hold it in. And by the time he gets to the tomb, he's weeping. And the clueless people around him think, Ah, oh, he's just sad over the loss of his friend. But they have no idea. Verse 38. So Jesus, again being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Again, in verse 38, we find the same thing. Jesus is disgusted and he's angered. Why? Because in verse 37, people were questioning him. Couldn't he have saved this Lazarus if he wasn't so slow to get here? Verse 39, a battle of wills starts between Jesus and Martha. And as strong-headed as Martha is, she ain't going to win this one. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he's been dead four days. Martha tries to take charge. I mean, don't you remember what Martha said earlier? She said, whatever you ask of God, God will give you. But you know, those were just words. Now she shows her true colors. She doesn't believe Jesus can do it. She's resisting him. Maybe she thinks she can take charge because she's family to the dead man. In fact, look what John calls her. He doesn't call her Martha, the sister of Lazarus. He says Martha is the sister of the dead man. Martha's concerned about the stench of Lazarus's decomposing body. Because in that time in that area... Jewish bodies, when they, were, uh, when they died, they weren't embalmed. Embalming is an Egyptian practice, for they will take all the organs out and, and try to make the rest of the body preserved as long as possible. Jews didn't do that. And so they didn't embalm the body, and so the body began to decompose and began to become stinky with the smell of decay quite quickly. And that's why Jews would add spices to the wrappings of the dead person. But Jesus is not going to back down from Martha. He reminds her that it is her responsibility to believe. It is not her responsibility to care for the body of her brother. That responsibility belongs to Jesus. She has one thing to do, to believe. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. Notice that Jesus didn't ask the Father what to do. 
He already knew what the Father wanted. Jesus already knew the Lord's will, the Father's will. This prayer is simply a prayer of thanksgiving. Why is Jesus being thankful? Lazarus isn't alive yet. Well, because it's as good as done. Jesus has faith where no one else does. And the reason that Lazarus is going to be raised from the dead is not primarily for Lazarus' benefit. It's for the benefit of all the witnesses. And the people who saw the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead, they would finally be able to conclude that Jesus is completely unique. His power is matchless. He can even overcome death. And now he gives command number two. Verse 43. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. I challenge any of you to go to the cemetery and try that. See how it works for you. But it worked for Jesus because there's something distinctively unique about him compared to us. Now let me say this. When a Jewish body in ancient days was wrapped in burial, they would, what they would do, it wasn't like an Egyptian wrapping. where You've seen that. And they would they'd wrap the appendages and then just wrap everything up. What they would do for a Jewish burial, they'd take a long sheet and they'd place the body on part of it and the rest of the sheet over here. And then they would fold the sheet over the body. And then they would tie it together. They'd fold the, bind those folded halves together. And then the head would be wrapped in a separate sheet. And that's why both with Lazarus and later with Jesus, there's a head wrapping that's separate from the rest of the wrapping. And so when Jesus gave the command, Lazarus, come forth, what happened was, with people looking into that tomb, was that inside that tomb... There was this body in burial clothes that began to move. And it sat up. And it stood up. And it began to shuffle out. It would be sort of funny looking. But he started to shuffle out of the tomb. And then Jesus gave command number three. Verse 44. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Jesus gave three commands at this point. The first one, remove the stone, and the third one, unbind him, involved the mourners who did not believe Jesus. So that... Later, when they would tell the story, they wouldn't just say, hey, I saw the whole thing with my own eyes. Some of them said, I cut the bindings off of them. Making it very clear that this story was true. And so now that Jesus has done something that's just completely unheard of, never before been done, He involves people in the miracle itself. Now everyone is going to believe in Jesus. Right? No. Not by a long shot. Verse 45. Therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to go tattletale to the Pharisees. And told them the things Jesus had done. It's amazing to me the lack of faith.
that some people have when the evidence is so clear. Why? Because their eyes are blinded. Even today, anyone who studies the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ can come to no other conclusion than the fact that he was resurrected from the dead. No other conclusion. Nothing else makes sense. There's an unbelieving theologian, John Dominique Crisson, when he was finally asked, what do you think happened to the body of Jesus? He doesn't believe in Jesus at all. But he's a New Testament scholar. And John Dominique Crisson said, oh, I believe that Jesus was buried in a shallow grave and his body was eaten by dogs. That's his excuse. That's his reasoning. But how in the world would that start a church less than two months later? Who would want to follow that type of Savior? The Savior that was eaten by dogs. How does that explain the miracle after miracle after miracle of many people witnessing the Lord Jesus Christ? Not only witnessing the Lord Jesus Christ raised from the dead, but being able to testify publicly about it. How does that explain when Peter and John were arrested in Acts chapter 4 for saying that Jesus was risen from the dead and you, the Sanhedrin, you are the ones who actually killed him? What would have stopped the Sanhedrin from simply going to the tomb and dragging out Jesus' body? Why didn't they do that? Because Jesus' body wasn't there. They knew where Jesus' body was buried. And his body wasn't there. There's only one explanation, that he was risen from the dead. But people who have no faith, no ability to believe, will not believe to this day in Jesus. How can anyone not believe in Jesus after seeing Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead? I mean, all you got to do is ask his disciples. And if you don't believe the disciples, ask Mary. And if you don't believe Mary, ask Martha. And if you don't believe Martha, ask the mourners. And even the mourners that didn't believe, they saw what happened. You could ask them what happened. But some people simply don't believe, no matter how good the evidence is. Why? Because to believe in Jesus, it means that you have to admit that you are wrong. To believe in Jesus, it means that you have to admit that you're a sinner. And some people will go to their grave fighting against God, never willing to admit that they are deserving of eternal damnation. They would rather go to eternal damnation than admit that they're deserving of that. Some people simply have too much pride to ever admit that they were wrong. And to believe in Jesus means that you have to be willing to pay the price. There is always a price to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. If Jesus is who he says he is, then there are consequences to that. That means that I have to follow him. That means that he deserves my full devotion. That means that he might want to make changes in my life and I will have to say okay. That means that he is the boss. Am I ready for that? For many people, they say no. I want to be the boss of my life. I don't want to make changes in my life. Therefore, no matter how good the evidence is, I'm not going to believe in Jesus. I will simply pretend he didn't exist. I'll go about my day. I'll try to ignore him. I'll try to ignore the promptings of the Holy Spirit, which, by the way, will become dimmer and dimmer and dimmer and dimmer the more you say no to the Lord.
There are consequences to saying yes to Jesus. There are consequences to believing in him. Jesus said, count the cost. Because there's always a cost. But some people are not ready to believe. And so the conclusion that we have of this story is simply the same conclusion that we had 2,000 years ago when the story actually happened. Are you going to be part of the many that believe, or are you going to be part of the others that do not? It is absolutely 100% your choice whether to believe in Jesus. If you do, you commit your life to him. You devote yourself to him. And he becomes a part, a very important part, the most important part of your life. But if you say, no, I'm not going to believe in Jesus, you have that ability. You have that freedom. There are people in Jesus' life here on earth who said to him face to face, no. They walked away. The rich young ruler is one of those. And there are many others. Are you ready to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? If today you're ready to do that, we want to give you an opportunity to respond. You can respond in a couple of different ways. During this next invitation song, you can come to the front and I'll be standing right over here and you and I can talk about your willingness to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You can also text me at 806-375-4240. You can reach me this week at your convenience, but I would caution you not to delay. I would caution you to respond right away. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. And so don't delay. You don't want to miss it.